0: Good evening. It's a great pleasure to have Elif Shafat with us at the LSE Literary Festival this evening. I am Shevket Pamuk, Chair of Contemporary Turkish Studies at LSE. And as you know, this is the third literary festival taking place at LSE with a bigger and more diverse program than ever before. The theme for this year's festival is Crossing Borders, and the program of events is designed to cross international, disciplinary, and metaphorical borders, exploring the interaction between the arts and social sciences. This evening's event is co-organized by the Contemporary Turkish Studies Chair and Forum for European Philosophy under the title of Europe's Literature as part of our joint European Questions, Turkish Angles series. And we would like to thank the festival's main sponsors, Garanti Bank, the LSE Annual Fund, and Michael Uva for their support. Now I am sure you all know about Elif Shafak, nonetheless please allow me to say a few words about her. Elif Shafak is an award-winning Turkish writer and one of the most widely read writers in Turkey. Her books have been translated into more than 30 languages. She blends western and eastern traditions of storytelling to generate fiction, that is both local and universal. Her work draws on diverse cultures and literary traditions as well as deep interest in history, philosophy, oral culture, and cultural politics. Shafak's writing breaks down categories, cliches, and cultural ghettos, bringing out the multiple stories of minorities, immigrants, women, subcultures, and global souls. She also has a keen eye for black humor, as well as spirituality, Sufism, and Ottoman culture, and backstreet Istanbul. Elif Shafak has traveled and lived around the world, and her writing has thrived upon these journeys. She sees herself as not just migrating from country to country, city to city, but language to language, even in her native Turkish, she believes she plays to the vocabularies of different cultures. Through it all, she has maintained a deep attachment to the city of Istanbul, which plays an important part in her fiction. As a result, a sense of multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism has consistently characterized both her life and her work. Elif Shafak writes in both Turkish and English and has published nine books, seven of which are novels. Her most recent novel, written in English, The Forty Rules of Love, was published in the US in February last year and in the UK by Penguin Books in June. With more than half a million copies. It has also become a best-seller in Turkey. She's also a best-selling author in Italy, France, Bulgaria, and a number of other countries. I would like to add a note, since we are ultimately an institution of social science, that I'm very pleased to inform that Elif Shafak is also a political scientist. Having graduated from the program in international relations at Middle East Technical University in Ankara, Turkey, she holds a graduate degree in gender and women's studies, and also a PhD degree in political science from the same university. Um, This evening, Elif Shafak has preferred to talk somewhat shorter than originally planned or under the same title, uh, but she would like, after this shorter presentation, to respond to questions, perhaps somewhat longer than would have been otherwise. Um, the title of her talk this evening will be <coughs> Writing Across Borders, Empathy in the Age of Conflict, where indeed Very pleased and privileged to have Elif Shafak with us this evening. Please give her a warm uh, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very honored, very happy to be here also excited and i also very much look forward to hearing your questions your comments your critical remarks so that we can t- we could turn this into a dialogue and not a monologue but allow me to start with um, some personal notes i started writing fiction at the age of 8 and that's not because i wanted to become a novelist or you know to sign books or anything like that To be honest, at the time, I didn't even know there was such a possibility for me. I didn't even know there was such a way of living. But um, I I, I started not because I wanted to become something, somebody, someday, but rather than that, it was perhaps a basic, simple and unsophisticated, you know, need to dream and to move beyond my little space that brought me into the world of fiction. I was an only child and I did not grow up in a, in a large patriarchal setting with brothers, sisters, you know, um, nephews and cousins and so on. It was only me and my mother. I was raised by a single mom, so except for the time uh, that I was with my grandmother, it was usually my mother and me. And because she was a working mom, I spent lots of hours on my own and books were the most colorful things in my life. Oftentimes I thought the world depicted in books was much more colorful and, was, and, and much more real than the so-called real world uh, or real life. I believe every writer needs to become a reader before becoming a writer and needs to stay as such um, to, to the very end. Now around the same time I started writing fiction but Again, it started with diaries. You know, normally in a diary you would start writing, you'd write about your personal experiences, your daily life, what you did on that specific day, the people who mattered to you, and the places you visited and so on. But because I thought my life was so terribly, terribly boring, instead of writing about the real daily life, I started making up things. And that's how everything began. So I wrote about people who did not really exist and things that never really happened. And because of that, it was a short leap for me from diaries into short stories. Because I was already blurring the boundary, the line between fiction and reality. And the reason why I'm saying this is because from the very beginning, storytelling for me was not an autobiographical pursuit necessarily. And this is a point that perhaps we can come back together later. Now, I do respect writers who are telling us that they're writing with a mission. I do respect writers who are saying, well, I write write because I need to bring out my personal story and share it with, with humanity, with other people. But that is not my starting point, and that's not how I write. Instead, just the opposite, I am more interested in not being myself. I'm more interested in being other people you know putting myself in the shoes of other people and looking at the reality from his perspective and then keep traveling be someone else and look at the reality from her her perspective and keep moving on and on and on so in a way if i may say this it is the transcendental experience of creativity that i am more interested in than the autobiographical work now, we're all born into a certain identity, a certain gender, nation, class, position, religion, and we tend to, without knowing, knowingly or unknowingly, we tend to stay in those cultural ghettos. Um, but I believe when I'm writing fiction, I am not a single voice, I'm the, maybe the, the sum total of multiple voices, which I believe at the end of the day is what it means to be human. We're all the sum total of multiple voices, multiple layers. Then the question is, can we have multiple belongings, multiple connections, instead of a static, homogeneous, monolithic definition of identity, which comes from identity politics? And again, this could be a point that perhaps we could talk during the Q&A. Now as I keep travelling between East and West, I also do think about what it means. What what do they mean, you know? Where does the East start? Where does the West end, you know? Um, what, What are their political boundaries? What are their boundaries? And if they do have boundaries, are these boundaries, are the political boundaries the same boundaries as the cultural and literary ones? I believe cultural boundaries are always much more fluid. They're more flexible and they are less impermeable than political boundaries. Some people say that East and West are like water and olive oil that they cannot mix. But I believe they are like perfumed waters, you know. And perfumed waters always mix. And in a city like Istanbul, they mix all the time, constantly. If you spend some time in Istanbul, you start to become wary uh, of these concepts. You know, it's almost—it happens almost um, intuitively, not necessarily intellectually. So, in other words, East and West are imagined concepts. They're not static. They're not. Fixed, they're not frozen, they are imagined concepts. And because they are imagined, it is possible to deimagine them and it is possible to reimagine them, imagine them in a different way. Um, Turkey, I believe, is a very interesting country in this sense, and it's a unique example in many ways. In Turkey, literature is a major social force. And if that is the case, I believe we owe it to women. Women from very different backgrounds, some old, some young, some wearing a headscarf, some not, some housewives, some professional women. But it's always women who give it an impetus, you know, who kindle the, um, this flame of, of literature. And women always make men read novels, in my experience. <laughs> um, nonetheless, when I look at highbrow literature, or the world of written culture, it also uh, intrigues me to see that it's a very male-dominated world. So in some ways, it's like women read and men write. And this is one thing that we would like to see changing more faster. And it is changing in a, in a, in a way. But nonetheless, um, when I look at the publishers, columnists, you know, critics, the people at the top of the written culture, it's usually a male-dominated world. For the public, this has changed and it is changing, but the elite is always slower to change. Now as naive or perhaps pompous as this might sound, I also believe that literature can contribute, particularly the art of storytelling, can contribute to building a healthier dialogue between the East and the West. And there are several reasons why I say this. Uh, I'll try to you know, name these reasons in a shorter format. We can go in more detail during the Q&A. The first reason is the concept of empathy. I think empathy is such a crucial concept for our art, for what we are doing. Again, um, em- when I say empathy, let me quote from Joyce Carol Oates. She says, "Reading is the sole means by which we slip, involuntarily, often helplessly, into another's skin, another's voice." another's soul. And I'm not claiming that we writers do this with, you know, in an altruistic way. I'm not claiming that we do this with noble intentions. It is just in the nature of the work we are doing. So it, it happens sometimes despite us. We build empathy. We have to do this in order to tell a story. We have, to, we have to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of another person and also to make that connection with the reader. So empathy is very crucial for us. The second reason why I believe storytelling can build to a healthier dialogue between cultures or civilizations is because we are interested in the micro-element, not the macro-element politics i mean daily life politics particularly is always speaking with sweeping generalizations there's always you know this talk about macro issues oftentimes at the expense of forgetting the human individuals that very basic you know simple starting point whereas for novelists for storytellers it is the human individual that's the starting point to look at the simple the daily life the micro the individual and that's why uh, I believe we pay more attention to, to the human being. Now when a Jewish politician and an Arab politician get together, unfortunately oftentimes they do not listen to each other, they do not hear each other anymore, but even today um, an Arab reader reads a book, a novel written by a Jewish novelist and empathizes and connects with the narrator. Or a Jewish reader reads a poem written by an Arab poet and feels the voice in the poem. And that's precisely because we focus on the micro, the human the human elements. The third concept that I believe is very important for us, or the, the third notion, is the, is the um, notion of humor. And when I say humor, this is not the kind of humor that looks down upon people. It's humour with compassion that's important to me. Politics is so serious. Politics always takes itself seriously. But fiction doesn't do that. Fiction has to make fun. You know, fiction has to turn everything upside down. It's a topsy-turvy world in the world of literature. And humour is central for me, for my work, particularly the kind of humour that dances and flirts with sorrow. So I like the dialectics between sorrow and humor. Now back in the Ottoman days, in the Ottoman Empire, we had a very interesting tradition uh, which is called tebdil. The sultans, sometimes for hours, sometimes for the whole evening, they would go out onto the streets in disguise and see life from a different perspective. Some scholars say this is because they wanted to spy on people, but... (coughs) I do not read it like that, I think they needed this, you know, as human beings they needed it. Now how how great is not to be sultan even for a few hours, you know, how liberating is that? Just like that, when you're reading a book, when you're writing a book, we go out into the street and look look at the reality from a different perspective, we become someone else, and how liberating is that? Another element, the fourth element that is important for me is fluidity. I think fiction writing is flexible. The element is water, it's not solid. It is flowing water, it keeps changing. Um, now, th- those of you who have been to Istanbul, of course know, and who are, also who are from Istanbul, know Topkapi Palace. In, in, in the palace, there's a special section right outside the, the rooms, the quarters of the favorite concubines. It's called the gathering place of the jinni. That notion, that concept has always intrigued me because it always reminds me of ambiguity. You know, When you are in between things, it's an ambiguous place. But I think it's also a very healthy place for storytellers, for writers, and perhaps for artists in general because you stay in between things. You look at things from, from, from equal distance and that land of ambiguity, that land of fluidity is um, healthier for us. I don't think a writer can ever be very sure of her truth. It's always better to keep questioning yourself, to be a little bit ambiguous about everything. And the fifth element that I would like to talk about is nomadic minds. As we write a book, as we read a book, we keep travelling. We travel in time, we travel in place. And that nomadic existence, even when we are perhaps physically stable, is very important for the, for the soul and for the mind. And the sixth and last element that is important to me is connections. I think at the heart of fiction writing lies the need, the endeavour to build connections. Umberto Eco once said, connections are everywhere and they already exist. We don't need to invent them. Sufis have been saying this in a different way. You know, we are all interconnected. And this is the age in which perhaps we have started to see this in a more visible way, in a clearer way, because now we know if somebody is unhappy, let's say, in Pakistan, that person's unhappiness does affect the life of someone living in Canada. We are all interconnected. And storytellers know this, again, almost instinctively, because when I write a story, it's always the connections that I am pursuing, that I am trying to show. And ideas, travel, ideas are contagious, Um, just like that. The need for democracy, the need for more human rights, these are not only vital, but they're also contagious, again, because we are interconnected. So these six elements, empathy, looking at the micro things, humor, fluidity, nomadic minds, and last uh, building connections, is very important in my understanding of storytelling, and I do believe because of these reasons they can contribute to building a healthier dialogue between cultures. Walter Benjamin once said, the novel as an art form was evidence to the profound perplexity of living. I like that definition very much, you know, the perplexity of living. I think that has not lessened in this age, just the opposite, it has deepened, if anything. The novel both echoes and heals the perplexity of living. Because when we read about another person's life, we remember a very fundamental truth, that that he is just like me, that they are just like us, with the same joys, same sorrows, same longings, same weaknesses. And I believe it is this basic truth that we are in need of remembering more and more in today's highly polarized and highly antagonistic world. I'll stop here, and then we'll continue with the Q&A. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, so. Uh we are going to begin uh, taking some questions and uh, one at a time. All right, we begin
2: here. Thank you for coming to LSC to give us this um, talk on, on your um, writing and your, your novels. I have a question. Um, I read your book, The Bastard of Istanbul, and uh, something that really intrigued me now that you are mentioning that you put yourself at the place of other people, people of other origins how were you able to um, um, let's say put yourself in the place of this Armenian character uh, because you alluded to that Armenian issue how how, uh, were you able to um, had you read about it were you surrounded by Armenians I'm, I'm very intrigued about that and I'm very interested in
1: Thank you for the question. Shall I answer? <clears throat> um, be, be, perhaps before focusing on one specific book, if I may say this, in all my books, in fact, and not all of them are available in, in English or translated or written in English, um, but in all of them, I believe there are characters from completely different cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, um, and sometimes, you know, when, when I have been asked in, on, in different contexts, I'm not these people then how I write about them I imagine I put myself you know I try to put as much as I can into in their shoes but this is not a static thing uh, you know I keep moving then then when I'm writing about a different character I impersonate that character and that's what I like about fiction because it's always so multi-layered there are multiple voices saying so many different things and it is up to the reader to make that journey Every time, each time I write a novel, I try to do my homework well, and by that I mean I research, I read, I read a lot, as much as I can. But after a certain point, and this is true for every book, you stop reading and whatever is inside you, whatever you feel in your heart, uh, you go on writing with that feeling. So uh, up to a certain point, it's an intellectual endeavour, you know, it's your fuel, you read, you inquire, you research, but after that you stop and it's the heart that guides you, in my experience. Thank you.
3: Yes. Um, well, I thought it was really interesting you pointed out the ideas of empathy and the micro-elements of life in, um, and how it's important for politicians to be aware of it. But at the moment, there's a huge disconnect between politicians and the really micro-elements of life. What do you think... Writers should do to change the channels through which they emphasise those elements, and how it can realistically influence yeah. policy in both Turkey and everywhere else?
1: Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question because, you know, I, I don't write with a mission in order to teach anything. In Turkey we have this tradition of father novelists going all the way back to the Ottoman Empire so we had this expectation that a novelist should teach something you know to his readers and pos- if possible you know guide them and teach them the right from the wrong, but i, I don 't believe in that. you know I like to be equal with my readers i don 't like those kinds of hierarchies, and to be honest, I think sometimes some of my readers know my books better than I do. you know they 're much more aware and conscious of the of the whole construct, so I, I like that not knowing what i 'm doing when i 'm writing, but that said. At the end of the day, you know, we, we connect with each other, not necessarily with politicians. A novel is in some ways always political. It has to be political. Why? Because not politics in the narrowest sense of the world. I'm not talking about parliaments. I'm not talking about deputies or you know, conservative liberals. Not politics in that sense. But politics in a wider sense is about power, power structure. So you know, a, a dialogue in a kitchen can be very political. And if I'm dealing with life, of course, there's always you know, some element of politics in it. But that said, uh, the, the main thing, I think the main change is from human to human rather than you know, trying to speak or reach uh, politicians. Thank you.
0: May I uh, ask you to introduce yourselves before asking the question, please? Thank you.
2: Hi my name is uh, Krasna Plewanek. Uh, I liked what you said uh, about writing uh, diaries. So maybe my question would be too personal but yeah. do you still uh, write your diaries or if so is it a fiction or <laughs> a real story? <laughs> and if it's <laughs> if it's real do you think what are you going to do with them because you know once discovered by other people they can yeah. be a weapon <laughs> really. Yes I thank you
1: that's That is a colourful, interesting question for me, but I don't write diaries. No, actually I abandoned diary very quickly uh, because of the reasons you know, I, I mentioned it was a very, you know, I jumped immediately to to short stories and from there to novels and once I found the novel although it was, you know, as a form it was very different than my personality because I'm a very impatient person, I'm incredibly disorganized Really, but you know, when you're writing a novel, you have to be patient, you have to be organized. So, in some ways, it balanced me, and I prefer to stay there. Uh, but it would have been interesting. And there are writers, of course, who keep diaries, but I don't. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Way at, yes, way at the back. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um, I mean Joel, um, I'm an academic at Middlesex University. My, con- uh, my question is about, that related to fiction and diaries or reality. That I know you're writing columns at a newspaper. How does it relate to that? How is your column writing is affected by your fiction or the way you write fictions? Thank How you. How do you relate it to reality? Yeah, thank you. I think that's a very good question. Um, and it's a question that I also ask myself, you know. Uh, again and again. In some ways, you know, I, I, I write twice a week for um, a major paper in Turkey, and it is a very teaching experience for me for a couple of reasons. Um, I realize the readers, newspaper readers, are not, of course, necessarily the same as fiction readers. So it's also different, different segments of the population that you can reach out. Um, and that's, that's stimulating for me. It helps me to think wider. But perhaps more importantly, because the novel is such a lonely art form, again, Benjamin calls it the loneliest form of art, because in every other area of art, you have to learn to work with other people, to coordinate, you know, a film director knows that, a singer knows that, every, you know, in, in, all, in all other forms. But when you're writing a novel, you are always on your own, sometimes for weeks, for months, sometimes for years. And to be honest, sometimes we think we're God. We are very self-centered people. And we end up being very arrogant people. That's why it's not a coincidence. It's a side effect of our work, really. So <laughs> it, it balances me. I mean, when, I'm, when I write columns, I, I have to learn to express myself in a different way, in a different style. And secondly, it connects me. I read more about what's going on in Turkey, in the world, uh, other people's stories, you know, women's stories, what happened that week. So, in a way, it takes me out of that cocoon, of that mental cocoon, and connects me better. That's why I like that exercise. I learn a lot from that <laughs> exercise. I cannot write more than twice a week, but this is a good dose for me. And it's a teaching dose for me.
0: Well, okay, we'll go there and then come back here. Okay.
1: Hi, uh,
3: my name is Lea Stankovic and I would like to ask you um, about writing in English.
4: Um, how did you decide to write a novel in a language which is not your mother tongue and how did that experience differ to writing in Turkish?
1: Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, you know. It it was not really a decision. So, you know, I did not sit down one day and say, "Okay, I'm going to write in English." It didn't happen like that. It was like an animal instinct. You know, I started writing and I kept writing, and I realized I cannot stop writing. So, why not go for it? That's how it happened. It was very irrational. Afterwards, I stopped and I tried to rationalize it, but it was with a hindsight. At the moment, there was no rationale in it. It was just, you know, intuition. I did not grow up bilingual. By that I mean, um, Turkish is my, of course, mother tongue. It's the, it's, the, it's the language of my childhood, of my grandmother, and I have a very emotional attachment with the Turkish language. And those of you who read in Turkish perhaps would agree, my Turkish has lots of Ottoman words, Sufi words, you know, coming from Sufi tradition. I like to expand. As much as I can, the, the, the borders of you know, daily life or, or daily um, Turkish. So I'm always interested in, in expanding it, in, in dis- discovering new words, new vocabularies. That has been a continuous pursuit for me. That said, I also enjoy writing in English. To me, English is a very mathematical language. Perhaps to a native speaker, it's not mathematical at all, but to me, it's very cerebral. And I like that challenge. It's a, it's an intellect, intellectually and spiritually I find it very stimulating. Its vocabulary amazes me. But most of all, what I like is to commute between these two languages. Because at, in each zone, I'm a different person. And that helps me, that gives me additional freedom, that gives me an additional zone. I mean, you perhaps also experience this as you move from one language to another, our voices change. Even the way we speak, we emphasize you know, our, our uh, pronunciation. Everything changes uh, because languages mold us. I don't think we own languages. Languages shape us. And that experience is something that, that I like. And interestingly, when I write in English, when I go back to Turkish, it makes me more attentive to details, to nuances. Um, and it's, it's, so it's more than you know a matter of grammar or vocabulary for me. I also pay attention to those words or concepts that cannot be directly translated from one language to another. I think why is this happening? So it also tells me something about the culture, the, the culture surrounding it. So it's a it's a continuous journey and exercise for me. And I believe this is the age where we can we can do this. We were just talking about this outside because in this age I think it's possible to dream in more than one language. You know. And if we can dream in more than one language, why not write fiction in more than one language?
0: Right right here. (coughs)
5: Uh, My name is Jasper Parrott. Um, You described yourself as a, a disorganized person. And also before you were talking about somehow in a way standing between yourself and something else. Uh, does that mean that somehow you surprise yourself when you write as to how actually the books end up? And do you feel in some ways that they are not quite your own product, but they've sort of taken on the, a life of their own, outside your own direct control?
1: I think that's a, that's a very good question, and I, and I do completely agree. This is something that I experience every time, each time. Um, I do not plan my books you know, ahead, beforehand and I do not master the, the story, I'm not the master of the story, you know. They're, my characters are not like puppets, marionettes, I'm not ruling them from above, just the opposite. Sometimes, and this happened to me while I was writing The Saint of Incipient Insanities, in Turkish is called Araf, there was this woman character, Gail. and I, want, I thought at the beginning she would be a side character, but as I kept writing, as the story kept unfolding, wow, you know, she became so important, I couldn't control her. This, this keeps happening all the time, and by the time I reached the end of the story, she surprised me, you know, she had a life of her own. And sometimes I love my character so much at the end of the book that it's really hard to say goodbye to them, because by the time you reach 400 pages, you you feel very attached to them but that's precisely because they have their own personalities <coughs>
6: yes
3: yeah, that's yes hi panchivanisangs you Suna that I i think you alluded in your speech to um, the feminizing um, or feminizing literary spaces of power and um I suppose for me, I, I think uh, if or when women start uh, feminizing more spaces of power, um, the, the sort of traditional trade-off tends to be you know between the home and and the sort of the career, and so you know I, I was wondering what your take on that as, as women: can, who
0: can you speak
6: up
3: Oh, as bit, women please? move into sort of, you know, spaces of literary power and other forms of power, you know, whether they bring the home front with them or whether they bring power to the home front or, you know, these dichotomies that sort of come up... For women, you mean. For women right? in terms yeah. of, you know, thinking about getting to spaces of power and the kind of trade-offs we seem to think we need to make mm-hmm. um, real and mm. imagined.
1: Well, thank you. It's... Uh I like to think about these subjects and I'm not sure I have you know, answers, definite answers, because for me also it's a it's an ongoing process of of thinking. There are of course you know several very crucial important feminist scholars who have talked about you know women's writing and how that tries to create underground tunnels inside this more patriarchal right, male dominated discourse. I like that, I like the rhetoric of that, however I'm more inclined to think the way Virginia Woolf used to think. She used to say our pen, our writing has to be bisexual, right? When I'm writing I'm both a man and a woman. And that's what I like. I like to be both at the same time. So rather than this ecriture feminine, this women's writing, I like to pursue this multiple identities uh, and the bisexuality of the pen uh, is more more intriguing to me.
0: right
6: behind
3: you. Yes. Thank you. I think it's kind of related with the um, previous question. I'm wondering if you um, are, when you're writing, especially writing um, about people who are in, in different social locations than you are, do you um, feel, re- I mean, how you deal with the responsibility of writing for others, especially others Who are uh, sort of in a uh, lower level and social hierarchy than yourself
1: or do you feel any responsibility? It is a tough tough question I I I don't think I'm representing any one other than myself or any any you know cluster any reality bigger or, or an identity bigger than than you know myself. But when you see yourself as the representative of something, perhaps you feel more responsibilities in terms of um, you know telling a story in the right way. But these are very heavy heavy thoughts. And if we exaggerate these thoughts, sometimes it's m- more difficult to imagine you know to dream because imagination has to be has to f- be free. You know what I mean? Perhaps I can answer it in a, in a, in a different way. Um, when I'm writing a story, I like to think of the story. This does not mean that I don't care about who's going to read it. I do care about it and I think every writer wants to be read. If If we claim the opposite, it's a lie, it's not true. All of us, we want to be read. When we bring out a book, we want that book to be successful. We want that book to do well, you know? It's a very human desire, it's a very human wish. Not only because of pure selfishness, you want to connect because if you're bringing out that story, you want, to, you want that story to touch other people's hearts. So that's very important to me, that connection with, with my readers. And one of the things that makes me happy, particularly in Turkey, is to see the diversity of my readers. You know, in book signings, I look at the people waiting in line, they're completely different the way they dress, the way they talk, their political views, their ideological backgrounds, their cultural settings. I like that because perhaps these are people who don't come together and who don't break bread together, but they're reading the same book. That diversity is very important to me. It's dear to my heart. But that said, while I'm writing a book, I don't think about responsibilities. I don't think about representations. I solely think about the story because during that time, that story is the reality for me. You know, those fictional characters are real for me. I have to believe that they are real so that I can keep writing. It's uh, after the book, after the book is ready and you give it to your editor, then you start to think about your responsibilities or you start to worry. I feel very anxious then, but by then it's already too late because the book is over. (laughs) The editor has the book, so, you know, that's how I get rid of the anxiety afterwards.
0: Okay, let's go in this direction. There are two ladies here, one and two, um, one after another.
4: My name is Datovic Gregorian and um, my question is the following. Do Do you think that writing and storytelling gives you the power to influence your readers' way of thinking? And do you like to use this to impact their mentality and perhaps push the boundaries, and perhaps talk about issues that are taboo in the Turkish society? Or do you sometimes feel limited let's say by Article 301, and you think to yourself, well, I'd like to talk about this, but I better not, because I might get myself in trouble. Do you feel completely free to write about whatever you want and use the opportunity that you are able to reach out to so many to
1: perhaps change this issue in the Turkish society? Thank you. Thank you. um, It's a tough, tough question. I mean, in many ways, I do feel completely free when I'm writing, and I do not censor myself. Again, precisely because of this reason, because while I'm writing, I'm in the story. You know, I I postpone my worries, my anxieties. I try to feel the story and make that my priority. However, uh, it wouldn't be frank if I say I have no worries at all, you know? For instance, I believe it's harder for women writers to write about sexuality particularly in Turkey, because it's a very much writer-oriented world, you know, rather than writing-oriented. So rather than looking at your writing, people look at the persona, and people, think, people always think everything is autobiographical. So whatever you put on paper, for a woman writer, it is so difficult to write about sexuality. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we lag behind male writers when it comes to writing about the body. We are not that courageous. But one thing helps, when we age, we become more courageous. <laughs> it's true, I mean, particularly in more traditional and patriarchal societies, aging is a big relief for women writers. I have seen women writers who are so happy to be old and who are writing <laughs> about sexuality with such freedom now, after they are you know, a certain age. So I feel that in myself as well. As I get older, I write about it more easily. <laughs> My name is funda i'm just wondering about uh, are you writing a new fiction now, and what about is it yeah thank you I, I am writing actually I came to london in in September and um, ever since then i 've been and also before i 've been working on my new novel. It takes place in 1970s and it takes place in different different cities it 's the story of an immigrant family in London in a Turkish family so it 's uh, I do a lot of research, read a lot uh, about movements, particularly 1970s. It's a very sad story. I'm constantly crying these days, honestly. <laughs> it's my children think there's something wrong with me. It's uh, particularly uh, the certain characters, while I'm writing them, I'm, I, I cry a lot.
0: Um, I'm having a difficult time sometimes finding uh, a male question asker, <laughs> but <laughs> I, 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 I observed one up there. Yes, please. No, way back at, the, yeah, yeah, all right.
4: Thanks for protecting the gender balance. Um, <laughs> my name is Bahadir, I'm a, a civil servant. Um, completing a PhD is pretty tough work and a serious commitment. How did you detach yourself from the academic life and carry on with what you're doing now, basically? Oh, thank Thanks.
1: you. I, while I was completing my PhD, particularly while I was writing the thesis, I went nuts. You know, I wasn't <laughs> myself. So I don't think it's a very, <laughs> 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 it's, it's the truth. It wasn't a very sane uh, process for me. But um, that said, I have to also tell you, I learn so much from you know, my academic background. I'm learning every day. I, I, I do cherish teaching, you know, not only in terms of being with you know, young people from completely different backgrounds, and London particularly is a great setting for that, I have to say. You know, all these languages, cultures, different experiences coming together, it's an amazing, amazing opportunity. <laughs> Um, and, and I believe teachers learn a lot from their students as well. So it's a, it's a process that's, that I cherish. I also learned a lot from an interdisciplinary background because I have interests in history, I have interest in political science, political philosophy particularly, but also religious philosophy in, uh, in, uh, in sociology. In microhistory, I have a lot of interest because microhistory micro is such a treasure for writers, for novelists. So all of these things, I, I believe, they also penetrated the art of the novel. They, you know, they keep feeding it. They keep. Uh, I'm, I don't have any, of course, uh, solid academic formation because I didn't pursue it as 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 well as I should have done. But nonetheless. I, I keep my interest alive, I keep reading and I learn a lot f- from, from the whole experience, both teaching and researching.
6: Yeah.
0: Yes.
2: Hello, uh, Adam Barron from Kingston University. To, to follow up uh, on that, uh, from that question about studying, could you perhaps talk about your experience of teaching uh, writing and how that perhaps hinders or helps your novel writing?
1: Thank you, I, I appreciate the question. Um, this semester, last semester, I've been teaching creative writing uh, here in London at Kingston University. And that, of course, was, uh, was an amazing pleasure for me. It was, it was, it was also a privilege in, in many ways, precisely because of you know, what, what I mentioned. Each of these students was from completely different backgrounds, from very com- completely different countries, but also very dedicated in, the, in, in, in literature. Um, with a huge passion for literature. And it's very challenging. It's also both spiritually and intellectually stimulating for me to discuss with them, to, to hear the questions they raise, and also to re- reread the text that you have perhaps already read, but from a different angle, from a different mm-hmm. perspective. Uh, I like the academia. I learn a lot, a lot from the academia. I have some doubts about teaching creativity. I still... Uh, creative writing, I still do, and I, and I talk about this sometimes. Uh, because of the way we teach you know i'm trying to ask myself how else this can be taught because it's it's a big big question mark you know how do you teach creativity how do you teach creative writing is it something innate is it something god given is it you know about talents is it so these are all big questions for all of us but i've also experienced that it's, it's an amazing encouragement for people to be in such circumstances, settings. It encu- because all of us are talented, we all have amazing talents, we are born with these talents. However, what happens is we lose faith in ourselves, right? We are discouraged by so many <coughs> impetus, by so many things during life. And in such settings, such cr- creative writing workshops, and other places, you find that faith back. That faith comes back. So despite my criticisms, I do believe in in that creative writing can be taught, and I I enjoy the experience.
0: Yes.
3: Hello, my name is Camila. I would like to ask you, you said earlier that um, connecting with your readers is very important to you. I would like to ask you about the um, perception and the attitude towards your literature, your books, among the Turkish readers in Turkey and abroad. Is it different? Do you see any differences between the the perception? Mm -hmm. And do you see the difference uh, among your male readers and female readers to your books as well? Mm -hmm. Thank you.
1: I might disrupt the gender balance now again, but um, I do see differences, yeah. I also see lots of commonalities, lots of, of course, similarities. As I travel from one language, from one country to another, certain things are so universal, and that is so rewarding, that is so inspiring for me. You know, When I write, let's say, about the life of a woman in Istanbul, but a reader in Brazil reads that, and she feels connected although she has no idea you know she has never been to turkey or or for instance about the forty rules of love i have met people who cannot find the place of konya on a map you know but they've read the book and it means something to them so these things are very very rewarding for us and you know it keeps us going at the same time i also experience and observe some differences among readers in different countries in turkey i've realized Perhaps they're a bit more emotional, and when they like a book, they like the author as well, and the author <laughs> the author becomes part of that family. I, I'm not joking, it's really it's amazing, I mean, in book signings, I look at the, the books people bring, sometimes the same book has been read by four people, five people in the same family. The grandmother has read it, the uncle has read it, it went to Germany and came back. <laughs> And really, and different people have read it by underlining it in different colors, in different colored crayons. So you see this. I haven't seen this in anywhere anywhere else. I mean, usually when you go to Western countries, everybody has their own book and keeps their own (laughs) book. But in Turkey, it is a collective experience, and that is amazing. Yeah.
0: (laughs) We have two here. Okay, we'll take both of yours.
3: Hello. Thank you very much. Is it on? Yes. Uh, My name is Naima Tahir. I'm a British-Dutch writer who lives in the Netherlands. Um, I want to share an experience and then um, ask you to share your experience on the same topic. Um, I write about uh, migration, about sexual rights of of, uh, Muslim women, about many things which not necessarily have to do with religion, but I find that um, during... Uh, the contact with uh, with the audiences or with with journalists um, there 's a tendency to really highlight the religion from the book the Islam of in course. this case because it 's such a hot topic mm-hmm. and Since
1: Turkey is a country of a lot of Muslims, I was wondering if you have the same experience
6: mm-hmm.
1: thank you I think it 's a very very important significant question for for all of us and of course it keeps happening all the time you know. It is a hot topic, but also because of identity politics. I have experienced this um, in America. I've experienced it a lot. You know, if you're not an American writer, if you're not from the West, but from the rest, what happens is, <laughs> what happens is, you know, you have a label um, attached to you. For instance, in our case, I mean, in my case, it's a Muslim woman writer, right? A write- woman writer coming from a Muslim country. And what happens is when once you are defined like that, people expect you to write accordingly, to produce stories that fit that definition. So if you're, if you're an Algerian woman novelist, then you are expected to write about the problems and experiences of women in Algeria. Full stop. Well, you may write about women in Algeria in one book, but maybe your next book is going to be about China in 17th century. I mean, why not? Why not? So it's all these identity politics that, of course, we need to... It's harder for us. It's harder for us because if we want to produce stories that you know touch different places, different hearts, different the backgrounds, it's much harder for us, but I think we should keep, keep trying because identity politics should not walk ahead of imagination, you know. My name is Shenay uh, Özdemir, I'm Dutch-Turkish mm-hmm. journalist and author. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> what's happening now in Middle East is a large conundrum for the West. Do you have, uh, can I have your opinion about what's happening in the Middle East? Right, wow. Uh, uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm a journalist. Is, of course. <laughs> it, is, um, it, is, it is such an important topic and for, 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 for all of us, um, not only for Turks, for, for, for all of us, of course. And isn't it interesting that the world is, um, you know, watching the Middle East with such surprise the world that thought the Middle East was a stagnant place, the world that thought the Middle East was a static place, was not dynamic at all, you know. Um, for a long time, I believe, unfortunately, the movers and shakers in the West, and perhaps everywhere else, approached the Middle East with such such clichés, uh, in the Islamic world in, in, in general. There is this, of course, um, notion It's uh, something when something is not good enough for the West, but it's okay for the Middle East. You know, you should support it because why democracy is a luxury for them. That was the mentality. It wasn't stated as explicitly sometimes, sometimes as explicitly as that, but oftentimes there is this mentality. And even today, there are people who think that it is a luxury for. Um, relatively less developed Muslim countries, that democracy, pluralistic society, is a luxury. There are people, there are top-notch analysts who believe in this. How can democracy be a luxury for anyone? I mean, to me, this is the same thing as saying, well, some women don't deserve women's rights because they're not ready yet. You know, how can anyone not deserve human rights? Just like that, how can any society not deserve or not be ready for democracy? So we have to believe in democracy. We have to believe that people do change. The Middle East is not a stagnant place. It's not a static place. It never was. Of course it has lots of problems. I'm not minimizing those problems. Of course um, it's an ambiguous process and we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody can foresee it. And, but, but no social force on its own can dictate the future. You know there's so many elements, but but I believe at the end of the day we have to have faith in people and we have to remember that everybody deserves democracy, everybody deserves human rights.
0: Well, I would like to ask you a question if I may. <laughs> um, you have uh, been emphasizing you would put yourself in the place of many of your characters, but it just occurred to me what about putting yourself in the place of Elif Shafak the novelist say if Elif Shafak the novelist lived a century ago in the age of the novel, say did you ever think about what kind of a novelist Elif Shafak would have been if Elif Shafak lived somewhere around the world about a century ago?
6: I think
1: (laughs) I think that's, that's an amazing question, and I'm sure I will be thinking about this question tomorrow as well, you know. And I will say, wow, I didn't, why didn't I give this answer? It will come to me. But... Um it, it, it also depends on where hundred years ago, right? Yes. If it was the if it was the Ottoman Empire, it, it's such an amazing time. I, I really like, I do enjoy traveling in time. There are particular centuries that excite me, like the 19th century, the 17th century, particularly around the Mediterranean. Amazing, turbulent, turbulent times, not easy times at all. I'd like to think that I, would, that I would again be a storyteller, that I would like to tell stories, but in what ways, it very much depends depends on the context, because even though our egos tells us that we are so different from the rest, at the end of the day, we writers are very much the creation of our society, of our setting, of our period, of our historical time. We are the product of all these Right Of all these forces, so I would be, again, the product of that era, of that setting, of that social place.
6: Okay.
3: Thank you. Um, you said that you were travelling between East and West, uh, which you believe that are established and artificial concepts. Uh, but w- what, what is your East and what is your West? I mean, what do they represent for you at least now? Uh, okay, there they are political things that maybe you don't believe in, and, um, but if you had to define it uh, very objectively now, today, what, what are the differences uh, between East and West?
1: Thank you. It is... um, I'm I'm not saying the East doesn't exist, the West doesn't exist, but what I'm saying is they are fluid concepts, and they are, at the end of the day, in our minds. The distinctions are in our minds. Certainly, there are cultural differences. However, there are also universal principles, like, you know, equality, gender equality, like democracy, human rights, that are, you know, everywhere. So I cannot say, well, that culture is different culturally, so it wouldn't fit. What I like to do is usually to keep both things in mind, that there are universal you know, uh, principles, and at the same time there are cultural differences. However, cultures are subject and open to change, and they're changing every day. And no culture is composed of one single color. I mean, when you go to Istanbul, it's an amazing multifaceted world, layer upon re- layer. And depending on whom you talk to you know, in Turkey, you would get a completely different account of Turkey. Really, it is because we are all so passionate about politics uh, and everybody believes in their, of course, their own standpoint. Um, so even inside one country, even inside one family, you come across so many different stories, so many different perspectives. When we speak through sweeping generalizations like the East, the West, we forget those nuances, and that's what I'm worried about. So I do use the words East and West. I have to. I cannot abandon them totally. But I always use it with a, you know, with a doubt, and I, and I, I, I remind myself that I should. Uh, leave the door open. So instead of putting a full stop at the end of my sentence, I always like to put three uh, full stops and, and remember that it's an ongoing process of change and, and continuity.
0: Yes, there are two over there, one and two, both of you here. Yeah. One, uh, one at a time, please.
1: Good evening. My name is Anahit Pilibosian. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for writing. I am Armenian from France, and uh, your books and the books of the chair's brother actually gave me the courage and um, interest to go in Turkey. To Turkey. My my question is about um, is the following. You expressed these six points that. Um, uh, construct healthy dialogues, and it, um, it seemed very fluid and easy. But I'm sure that you, uh, you've been through conflicts or fights to reach this peaceful mind. So if you can share this transition with us, that will be interesting. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate, um, I appreciate very much the question. It is true, I mean, um, and I think we're all full of, full of conflicts, you know. Sometimes we can talk about very peaceful, big truths, but then the moment I go outside, when I'm driving my car, if somebody you know, does something wrong, then I'm not talking in that peaceful voice anymore. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, that's, that's what it is, you know. Human beings, we have so many voices, so many conflicting sides. But I think the crucial thing is to be okay with those conflicts. And to be honest, um, I'm I'm not claiming I achieved this, but I am learning to achieve this. And one of the things that I learned most from was uh, a long-term depression that came to me after the birth of our first child. I experienced a postnatal depression that went on and on for 10 months and it was a very shaking experience for me precisely because I stopped writing and this happened to me for the first time in my life. You know, I mentioned that I was writing fiction since my eight years old, that was the first time I I stopped and I, I had to rethink everything, you know, what does it mean to create? am i really creating something you know where does all creativity come from etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, I- including very existential questions about life death who you are so it was a very depressing n- Long term for me. But what happened is, out of that came a book called Black Milk, which uh, is coming out in English soon, and hopefully we will also be able to talk about it. While I was writing Black Milk, I made so much fun of my depression. It was so liberating, you know, that, again, that sorrow, that sorrow and humor. And what I saw. Was I had different sides in me, like these different six women constantly quarrelling. One of them maybe is the Sufi in me, who wants to just have her peace and stop, you know, uh, trying to stop being ambitious. The other is maybe the ambitious side of me. The other is the writer or the more intellectual side of me. The other is the domestic side of me, who, wants, who only wants to make apricot marmalade and does, is, doesn't care about books, you know. So all these voices are constantly, constantly quarrelling. And I realized I had a monarchy inside me. All these years, I I made this writer intellectual, the monarch, the queen, and I suppressed all the other voices inside me. With the depression, they all came to the fore, and it was a hell. Of, you know, however, out of that hell, of course, came democracy. Inside democracy, <laughs> so I, I was able to topple down the, the monarch, and now we there's more inner democracy. That helps me, um, but it's an ongoing process, of course.
2: A nomadic experience of uh, Turkish people actually because of the past of Turkish people uh, does that cater Turkish people to engage with the novel uh, in a privileged way because you, you are mentioned one of the pillar of these five themes uh, in your speech. Second uh, question will be global readership. When Orhan Pamuk was asking kim için yazıyorsunuz, whom do you write for? This is the most uh, hatred question uh, for him but at the end of the chapter chapter, he kind of answers actually, I do write only a few handful global readership. So do you uh, appeal to a particular global readership in your novels, or do they, uh, are they kind of translators in the uh, novel writer? If you do really appeal to them, because there are a few, so being a populist writer or a popular writer risks the quality of the literature.
1: Thank you. I, I understand, and this is, a, <clears throat> this is a criticism that I get from time to time in, in Turkey, particularly. Um, they're telling me, you know, if your readership increases, will that right decrease the, the quality of fiction? I don't have easy answers for that, to be honest, but what I know is I love what I'm doing, and I do thing that I love right I, I write stories because I love writing stories if I hadn't loved it would have been such a burden on me it is really an insane amount of work particularly when you're writing it in English you go back to Turkish you almost rewrite the whole thing really an amazing an amazing amount of work I'm, I'm obsessed with details sometimes I say you know why am I doing all this you can enjoy life much better, you know, when you're not writing a novel. And the only answer I can give is because I love this. And that love has not decreased over the years, just the opposite. It has intensified, it has increased. So when I'm writing a book, I'm not thinking, is it going to be popular? Is this going to you know, decrease the quality? I believe in what I'm doing and I do it. I write about it. Of course, I want my people to read it. Of course, I want people Mm to To enjoy, of course I want my stories to mean something for people, but influence is always mutual, you know, as much as those stories perhaps and hopefully touch people's hearts, this talk is also influencing me, you know, in everyday life where there's always always interaction and it's always two-sided. So what I'm trying to say is, I also learn from my readers. I give something, but I also take something. And that makes me feel grateful. So as the number of readers increase, I've never thought, I've never seen it as a burden. I was grateful for it. And I do not write for a specific population. or for for, uh, If you ask it to me, I don't write it for a specific audience. What I like, what I prefer, is people from very, very different backgrounds as I said, reading those books, meeting in that story. Because at the end of the day, I think art should be able to do that. And art should have its doors open. I can never say, you know, I prefer this kind of reader to that kind of reader. No matter how they dress, no matter what they think, no matter what their ideological background, the doors of my books have to be open to all people. you know. Because if there's a connection, there is a connection. And to be honest, I don't think that I own my stories stories come to me. I mean when I was reading Rumi I didn't want to talk about this a lot because it sounds very insane after a while to be honest but um, sometimes I feel like we are like you know stories come to us, we connect maybe there's, there's, um, there's a zone of creativity we connect with so I'm, I'm, I'm not the owner of those of those stories, that's not how I feel.
0: Okay. We have one more here and then we'll come back there's a lady over there, yes, and then we'll come back
4: here. Hi, thank you very much for coming today. Uh, My name is Yasmin. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. Have you received any offers to um, create a movie or soap opera um, for your books? Um, And if not, which I doubt
1: it is, which book would you like to create a soap opera from? (laughs) Um, there, There have been some movie offers, Um, on some of my books, particularly the latest, The Forty Rules of Love, uh, in Turkey more than anywhere else. However, I didn't rush. I, I love cinema, I have to tell. I mean, there are two areas, there are two forms of art that are very important to me. One is music. I always write with music, and I'm always inspired by music, and the second is cinema. I'm a big you know, admirer of, of cinema. However, I, particularly for this book, I didn't want to rush because it is at the end of the day about Rumi and about a real person. It's very important to do it with the right people, with the right energy, so uh, I try to take it easy, but I, I cherish. I cherish the, the connection um, the interaction of different forms of art. This could be you know, music and cinema, this could be cinema and poetry, whatever, different different forms, different artists coming together and creating a common synergy. That's something that I find really, really exciting and I'm always in favour of it.
5: Right yes. Um, hello, I, my name is Simon. I'm a philosopher and... Um, I was interested in uh, you talked about politics and you talked about it in terms of things like policy and publicness and seriousness the sort of obsessions with common identity a sort of indifference to particular differences and in a way indifferent to ordinary singularities (coughs) and on the other side you had fiction writing concerned with the micro the singular the life of connections relationships perhaps rather more domestic and first person and the writer absorbed in the world. Well I'd like uh, some sense of what philosophy might be here. Uh, Some people I admire think of philosophy as sort of bringing to concepts the simplicity of the familiar or uh, saying what would be the unsaid of poetry and literature. Um, Now people have asked you uh, well, you get asked, what do we expect from fiction writers? We're clearly rather a lot. Um, but what do you expect from philosophy?
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Um, it, is, it is important to me, uh, precisely because I've always felt this in- interest in, particularly political philosophy. I have learned a lot from political philosophers. You know, the whole Frankfurt School has an amazing experience for me. Perhaps, you know, you might think, what's the connection? It's, you know, what she's writing and what they're writing was so different, but it's not like that. They helped me to think um, in different ways. So I've always enjoyed reading also Habermas, Hannah, and of course many, many, many philosophers. Um, And I'm also interested in religious philosophy a lot. Um, Religious philosophies from, you know, from very different settings, from different backgrounds. I like the questions that philosophy raises in general. And I don't think novelists can, can disregard those questions, because at the end of the day, they are very basic, fundamental, universal questions about what it means to be alive, what it means to be present, what it means to be in this specific moment. Right? You know, all the questions that Heidegger was raising, they mean something to us, because I am dealing with those questions and I cannot understand the human individual unless I take a closer look at those questions about life, death, you know, what does it mean to exist and not to exist, what does it mean to be mortal or immortal, so I think there's an overlapping area, and that's one reason perhaps why I've always been uh, intrigued in, in philosophy in general. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm a student here. Uh, my question is, uh, <coughs>
3: by, reading, by reading some of your books, I could see a lot of um, feminist uh, issues and concerns raised there, um, uh, especially in black milk. Um, my question is, first, do you call yourself a feminist? And my second question is, to what extent do you think your feminist convictions uh, influence
1: or shape your novels? Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, sometimes we, you know, <clears throat> get these emails in Turkey um, when I write, particularly in, when I write my columns and if it's, a, if it's an issue related with, you know, gender matters, sometimes I get slightly angry emails from male readers saying, are you a feminist? So, um, and I'm always, you know, I always doubt w- what shall I say. At the end of the day, I see myself a- as a writer, you know, without any isms involved purely a writer, um, and I have, I have some critical opinions about feminism, and you know, I criticize certain aspects of first wave and second wave feminism. However, I'm also very respectful of feminism. I believe that if today we can enjoy certain rights, certain privileges, we also owe it to feminists. they don't, um, it's not necessary for them to call themselves feminists. There there were lots of women struggling for women's rights. It is a continuity, so it would be very ungrateful for me not to be aware of that continuity. So I'm also also very respectful of feminism. Um, Perhaps, you know, at some point I thought, shall I call myself a post-feminist? Because I I, I try to push it further, you know, the feminist culture. I'm also both critical and respectful. But at the end of the day, you know, all those labels, after a point, they don't mean much to me. What really matters to me is I believe in in gender equality. I was raised by a single mother, I was raised by a divorcee, and I saw the struggle that she had to give in a very patriarchal setting. How can I, you know, not be aware from, from childhood onwards? These issues matter to me, and I believe that stories and the art of storytelling has a specific role, has a special role for women, particularly um, in, in all societies, East, East and West. So yes, I have a very, perhaps, soft, um, I, have, I have a lot of sympathy and more than a sympathy for feminism, yeah. Thank you, Arminay Um I like all your books, and my question is, as a writer, who are you reading? Which literary writers are you reading? Thank you. I appreciate Usually, I, I like to keep my reading list more, more eclectic. This has always been, been the case. But yesterday, I was writing an article, and I was thinking, you know, talking about Egypt. And I, re- and I realized this with some embarrassment. I realized, wow, you know, I started reading Nejib Mahfouz in my early 30s. And it is late, you know, early 30s. Why didn't I read him before? I was reading extensively Russian literature. I read a lot of Russian literature and I like it a lot. Um, European literature, continental Europe, French literature, English literature. Of course, these mm-hmm. have been translated into Turkish very, from very early o- onwards. But for instance, Nejib Mahfouz's Cairo Trilogy, which is you know, one of his most famous, important works, was translated into Turkish in 2008. Isn't it amazingly late? I mean, you know, you would think there's so much connection in this between these countries, but um, we pay more attention to European literature than you know, literatures from from other other countries. So I'm also aware of that. I, I try to keep it more eclectic. I also read as much as I can on Sufi, you know, literature uh, and contemporary literature, you know, American literature, English literature. I'm 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 a hungry. Reader, as as much as I like, it's not important for me. So it's not only one single category. I can read everything, and sometimes I read very irrational things when I'm writing a book because I'm interested in that specific topic. Like when I was writing the Flea Palace, I really was reading about uh, pesticide, you know, because there's uh, really there was um, because because the the story needed it. So when I'm writing a, a book. I I read the things that the book needs. But other than that, I try to read literatures from all around the world.
3: Um, I hope this doesn't too much uh, repeat the previous question. I suppose it sort of supplements that question, which is, are the sort of authors and the books that you read as a reader different to the books that you enjoy in your capacity as a writer? And if so, what's the difference? And sort of who who falls into the different categories?
1: Um, you, mean, <coughs> you mean authors, names? Um, well, uh, books <coughs> or authors, but, books but or authors. do you read differently <coughs> as a
3: reader to, you know, do you, do you enjoy different authors in your capacity as a reader to the authors you enjoy in your capacity as a writer?
1: Um, you know, wh- what happens is, I mean, I enjoy different, reader, different <sighs> books sometimes for completely different re- reasons. Sometimes you like that writer's style. Sometimes you're only interested in the subject. Um Sometimes you want to learn more about that issue, so for completely different reasons, you might be drawn to different books and to be honest, sometimes we're very envious of of other authors. I think we're incredibly jealous creatures as writers, and when particularly when I read a book that is very well written, I feel sometimes very jealous and i'm like, I wish I had <laughs> written that book I mean it happened for instance, with this uh, white tiger when i when I read um, and I was like, because it, it happens, it's, it's, it's very human, uh, but basically I like reading, you know, that's, that's what, what's at that the well, essence. Well,
0: um, you may not have noticed, but time is running out, <coughs> so we'll take two more questions, please, one here, and then two, and we'll end it with a question from a, one of our male in members of the audience, two here in the middle, one. At the back, just yes, one and then two.
6: Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's the one, no, no, the lady, the lady first. Yes,
6: yes.
3: <laughs> Thank okay, you. I will go. Uh, Zeynep Yalcin, I'm project management engineer. Uh, yeah. Just I want to ask, uh, can you please compare yeah. London and Istanbul in terms of their effect to your writing? Because Istanbul is, I'm writing as well, sometimes. and uh, I'm really inspired from Istanbul, but now I'm living in London. Uh, uh, Istanbul is a really, like, uh, where the East and West joins, and so cu- where cultures, cultures join. Uh, and London is a really mixed city as well. I, I think it li- it's like a little world. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they affect differently on, uh, on your writing? Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you i Of course, I believe the you know the cities we live in they do have an effect on us, and also the travels they have an effect i I, I write um, I, I've written you know so many things at, at airports, train stations going from one place to another, and I believe the very the sheer fact that I was on the move has also an effect, so not only cities but the movements as well but that said, Istanbul has always had a uh, very you know dear place in in my in my heart it is really an amazing city it is really an amazing inspiration a treasure for particularly storytellers because it is teeming with stories like every you know every apartment building every corner there's there's a story and an unknown story it's not brought to the fore it's not excavated yet so there's a lot of inspiration if you are a curious person particularly if you do like to if you like to do research um, there's a lot in, in, in Istanbul and, and, and life can be both very inspiring but also a bit tiring sometimes. So there's, there's, there's both sides. London is also, I believe, an amazing place in that, in that regard. It's buzzing with energy, you know, teeming with energy. Such places I've always felt had an important impact on me, but I also know some writers who write in a completely different way and they they like their own, you know, perhaps more quiet, neat and tidy environment and it doesn't really matter to them what they're observing outside. I write in cafes, in coffee houses. I I, I hate silence. I, I cannot write in silence. I cannot operate in silence. I freeze. What happens is, I have to have noise in the background. I have to have people moving, street life. So for people like me, London, Istanbul works very well. But for another writer, it might not work very well, because it's too distracting.
0: One more. Right here. Yes.
4: Hi. Uh, My name is Tolga Çakır. Uh, I would like to ask you a very short question. Uh, You said that you were born in Strasbourg, right? and uh, how many years did you live there <laughs> 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 this is the first question that is second that question is that uh, your book b dot dot of istanbul i i am quite critic about the name of this book i really don't agree with it uh, just based on the simple fact that there's a severe word in it, and uh, there is also religious elements inside, like Rumi. Uh, this is the reason. Did you think that it would cause controversies uh, after you wrote the book?
1: You mean uh, yeah. you're against the title of the book, The 40 Rules of yeah.
4: Love? No, the B. dot, dot of Istanbul.
1: The bastard yeah. of Istanbul. Okay. It's, it's against okay, my okay. personal yeah, 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 that's ethics, right. that's why. That's yeah. okay, yeah. Um, first of all going back to your first question I did not live in Strasbourg for a long time because my parents were separated I came back to Turkey with my mother Uh, my father stayed there, we came back so I did not live in uh, Strasbourg I went back to Strasbourg afterwards but um, I I, I can't speak the language and I I don't know the city very well of course I've just visited Um, about the title of the book you know this is this is an interesting dilemma for us and it always surprises me but I, I, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote which is important to me and which taught me many things. When I wrote my first novel, Pinhan, when it came out in Turkey I received a letter from, from a reader in Bursa uh, in, a, in, a, in a city in Turkey, in an Anatolian city and it was eight pages long and she was analyzing the book. To this day, I've never read anything like that. It was an amazing literary analysis. It was so smart. She was so much aware of so many things I, was, I wasn't aware of. And on the last page, she says, um, perhaps you also, and she loved the book. She really, really loved the book. I could see it. You know, she connected with the book so well. And on the last page, she says, well, also perhaps you would like to know something about me. I am in political science." I'm a woman, uh, I come from a conservative background, I wear the headscarf, you know, I was raised in uh, a bit more traditional setting. When I finished your book, I loved it so much, I gave it to my best friend. And she is my very, very best friend to this day, you know. And she comes from a conservative background, she also dresses like me, she is also in the university in a different department, and we always share everything. We always share, you know, we're the best friends in the world. I gave the book to her, three days later she came back, she said she could only read until page 40, and she had absolutely hated it. So my reader was saying, and I, I, I never forget this, on the last, in the last paragraph she says, she was shocked, because to that day they were always thinking alike on every subject, you know, they shared their heartbreaks, their private thoughts, everything, but about this book they disagreed. Um, so she finishes the letter by asking me, who is right? You know, did I get the book right? Because I love it, I adore it. <laughs> or did she get the book right? Because she didn't like it and she, 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 you know, she thought certain things were offensive. Who is right? She was really puzzled. And that's why I like literature so much, because there's no right and wrong. Because both of them are right. You know? Because she brought her own perspective into the book, she brought her own perspective into the book. No two readers read the same book. You always bring your perspective into the book. We create the book together, (laughs) right? So it's not like the the, the reader is a passive being and the writer writes something and gives it to the reader. No, it's not like that. There's a dialectics. We create it together. It's also your perspective, your own gaze that sees certain things, that loves certain characters or doesn't like certain characters. And that's very normal. So both of those readers are right. And I like that's why I say literature is fluid. It's also flexible. That's why.
0: Well... This has been a wonderful an hour and a half. I want to begin by thanking the audience. I think you've asked this evening so many interesting questions and you've also proved that you, so many of you are such close, careful readers of Elif Shafak. And uh, of course then we want to thank Elif Shafak. She insisted on this particular format and It was hugely successful, and she offered us a very stimulating, colorful evening. And I'm sure so many of us will go back home thinking about so many of the things she told us this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.